So this show is carbon positive. We've partnered with Carbon Positive to allow us to get to that point. Listen to the show to find out how you also can become carbon positive. I have one GCSE. I'm dyslexic, I'm dyspraxic, and I have mild ADHD, which makes things rather exciting when trying to run a business. However, I have built multi-million pound businesses with no investment, and now I invest in others. And guess what? I love every minute. I'm Oliver Bruce. This is my podcast, Success is in the Mind, and welcome to The Journey, a podcast where we speak to founders and entrepreneurs from the businesses that you've always wanted to know more about. We delve into the formative years of their business lives and ask those with the inside track on startup and scale up life, the questions I wish I knew the answers to when I started out. As always, the more you share and subscribe to this podcast, the more people that'll be able to learn, enjoy and avoid the mistakes that so many make. So when should you raise VC funding? Should founders give all employees equity and what do acronyms banded around in boardrooms like SEIS, EIS, TAM and VAT actually mean to founders like you? We'll shed light on just how many founders are neurologically diverse, and we'll show you how to get through tough times when things inevitably get hard. I'm Oliver Bruce, and welcome to Success is in the Mind, the journey. To bring someone on board full-time, I think you have to be able to look them in the eye and say, I can afford to pay you for a minimum the next 18 months. It's embarrassing sometimes how rudimentary some of the mistakes are. Like you, you kind of feel like you're a crosser or should be or have the experience to, but there's you know there's too many things to be doing at once to, to get everything right. We've certainly not been guilty of getting everything right. What you put into your body is going to have a enormous impact on your emotional and mental stability. The next waves are coming through, you can't like, you're gonna get crushed by the next one if you sit there and ruminate for too long. But Damien, thank you ever so much for joining me. Um, you were born, now you're here. What kind of happened in between? Jesus, what happened in between? Well, I turned 40 at the end of last year, so quite a lot's happened in between. It feels like multiple lives uh, when you uh, arrive at this point, but what's happened in between? Uh, there's been maybe oh, two or three continents, you know, a, um, a an accidental career, and then now hopefully a slightly more intentional business. Because you, because you never went into entrepreneurship. You started at L'Oreal, am I right? I started at um, Uncle Toby's um, back in uh, in Australia, which is owned by Goodman Fielder. So I was just bread filling um, before I um, was going to uni in a completely different field. And so that was my first experience of CPG, I guess, or food and beverage. I've just kind of stuck in this thing for the last 22 years, I guess. And innings, but you haven't been in Hux, which is the business that you're now running for that period. You kind of, you started it with three co-founders. It's it's properly innovative. You sent through some product, and as I said to you off air, it, they are genuinely really good, specifically the sleep one for me and the focus one. I've got a mild ADHD, so having some kind of focus is, is a good thing. So thanks for that. But in terms of how you kind of went into the world of Hux, um, how did it start? Because, you know, you're technically selling drugs well it started as a it started as a chat over selling another drug so my co-founder was <laughs> a, a, a a pub and a brewery called wolfpack um and uh at the start of lockdown essentially we were uh had the task of getting through some of his cakes um uh that were going to go off and you know um and just really just having a chat with friends and kind of had you know crossover of interests um but uh, and I'd been in uh, health food for the last you know, five years, um, working at um, Kind International. And we're, cause we're kind of just chatting. So he was a um, ex rugby player, um, you know, played with Springbok and played for Saracens, um, and then finished his career. And um, and then we kind of joked that he's a successful athlete. I'm a failed athlete. We've kind of come together to um, to to try and uh, be somewhat useful entrepreneurs. But we'll see. Jury's out on that. Um, so we kind of we were chatting about the fact that basically the category is it's hard to shop. You know, it's if you if you're thinking about how we lived our life, which is, you know, like to have a drink, like to exercise, like to eat well, but also like to try and kind of get this vessel to do as many things as you possibly can and try and keep it intact for a, a life that's probably been yeah. hard lived to now. Um, it's kind of confusing to know where what to consume. 
what's useful, what's not. And so it kind of, it really started from there. Because what was your first product then? When you went, right, we're going to start Hux, what was the first skew that you had? So the first product we had was um, our um, superfood blend. So um, I've always consumed, you know, believe in the the need to, you know, um, well, I believe in the fact that you every day you should wake up and put something good into your body to start the day in the same vein as making a bed, you know, just start as you intend to go on. I, I do believe that your body is probably too acidic. You need some alkalinity in it. And I, and I do believe in like just having like an insurance policy. And I've always consumed this product or category for a long period of time. Um, uh, our sister was working in South Africa in a, in a business that uh, was a supplement business. And he was consuming some of the products when he was back in South Africa for a trip and then came back and we were basically just saying, you know, all the shortcomings of the ones that we found on the market. And I, at the time I was um, consuming Athletic Greens. The shortcomings, which is now enormous, you know, um, and that those guys have done an incredible job. But the shortcomings of the things that we saw on the market were like, you know, maybe we just have to go at producing one. So that's what we started with. Because there must be a lot of red tape for anyone that's going into that, you know, whether it's health food, whether it's drugs, whether it's any products. Like when you actually have to go and sell it, what do you have to go through to get it to market? It's not just, oh, this tastes good. It's doing something. It might be a placebo. We'll sell it. There must be a lot of stuff you have to jump through. Quite heavily regulated as it should be, you know, and it's quite heavily regulated. Uh, well, it's the regulations are different around the world, which is, um, but the EU um, is a fairly high standard, which is good. In terms of kind of formulating it together, you know, we, we partnered with you know great people that were that they have an exceptional R and D team. You know, we're not doctors and scientists and nutritionists, so we were very clear that we needed to what we don't know, and that whilst we're consumers and know what we wanted in the product. We needed experts to you know pull it together for us, and so we worked with amazing people that sourced sourced ingredients. We went through forty different versions of it to try and you know get it to to be that as efficacious as it is, but also taste. I mean, it's not a milkshake, but you know to taste okay. You know, I'm not going not to promise anyone it's delicious, um, but of the ones on the market, but you know, I think it tastes pretty palatable for something to consume first thing in the morning with water. Yeah. Because what what struck me is when you say palatable, each tablet and going into the tablet, each tablet has a different taste, and I couldn't quite understand why that was. Is it because of the different ingredients within it? Is it the the, the packaging, so to speak? What's the the reason behind that? There is just some differences. I was referring there to the superfood blend, like the just kind of like the powder that you mix into water. But you you spot on like the um, our sleep product and your shopping products and our beauty products, you know, have some, which are the capsules, have some slight differences in kind of taste that you can pick up as you're, as you're having the capsules just due to the um, ingredients that are inside. But um, yeah, it, it took quite a long time to, to, to get that first product, that, that blend right. You know, a lot of backwards and forwards, also backwards and forwards at a time during COVID. Um, and so you're, do, you're having like, you're having to get all batches sent to everyone's house do collective taste testing in your kitchen. You know, it was quite cumbersome to 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 get it to a point where you know we we were happy with it. I can imagine vir vir virtual taste testing isn't isn't overly ideal, although it worked well for the alcohol industry over uh, over the pandemic. But you were developing it for two years, weren't you? So that was kind of roughly how long it took. How did you fund that? Because you know, coming out of sport, coming out of the business that you got, you were in, for instance. What seed capital did you have in place to be able to pump into a bit of R and D? Because it can't have been cheap. Yeah, we just basically bootstrapped it from the start. So we were, you know, um, lucky in having some really good contacts and you know networks that we've accumulated over the time of you know um, an excellent um, R and D team that we could use to format the product, also source, and then get that kind of initial recipe and ingredient together. Um, who then also came on board as really early seed pre-seed even um, investors in our business. One, because they you know knew us and knew the team that we were putting together and kind of wanted to be involved. So we were super lucky to partner with you know really good sourcing experts um, and also co-manufacturers kind of right from the beginning that helped us spend a lot longer in formulation than maybe some other people would have, just because we're able to be patient because we weren't having to expend a, you know, a truckload of money that we then had to really rush a product to market and then generate revenue straight away to recoup that money. You know, we were able to 
take a, a longer term interest with the people that we were partnering with. So just in terms of that, in, the, in terms of that pre-seed and then the seed, et cetera, just talk me through that process because people that haven't necessarily gone through a fund irrespective of the value won't necessarily know how to do it. They might assume that going to mum and dad or going to friends and family is the best way to do it. And in some instances it is if they have the liquid and if you have that circle. But for those that don't have that ability, how do you raise 100, 200, 300, 400,000 quid to get an idea off the ground that has no track record? We basically um, went through what's called an ASA, so an advanced subscription agreement, which is a, a you know the UK version of a safe, um, which is a convertible note, essentially. And so the, the, the benefit of that is that you're able to then generate SEIS and EIS investment, which I think is actually not that People don't talk about the fact that the UK is actually really supportive of entrepreneurs. You know, the you know governments can get a lot of flack for things, but the the SEIS and EIS, you know, incentive for people to invest into very early stage businesses and then receive a you know income tax reduction from that investment, um, I think has spawned a lot of entrepreneurship and innovation into the UK that wouldn't have existed otherwise. Um, true of lots of Industries, but it's especially true of food and beverage and CPG. Hundred percent. I mean, the SEIS scheme, so to speak, and I think it goes up to quarter million quid now. I think they've upped it. It does. They've upped it from one fifty to two fifty euro. Yeah, and I think just to paint a picture for those that don't get it, you, you essentially, if you invest ten thousand quid, you will be able to save five thousand pounds on your personal tax. Essentially, it's fifty percent of the investment value. Plus, obviously, if the business goes peak tong, obviously there's some tax incentives there. But that's obviously not why you invest. Um, so you did an SEIS scheme to start with. What was your initial sort of seed fund? So we initially raised um, four hundred thousand um, right um, right up front from uh, contacts, friends and family, as you said. You know, just kind of. Got, got us enough to you know recoup some of the uh, some of the costs that we had laid out. Put some more development into more products because we kind of saw that we wanted to go into um, more spaces. Like the kind of four bigger spaces that we saw were important for people. We wanted to kind of front load innovation so that we could be a brand that people could have in their life across multiple parts of the day, rather than just have you know and, and solve four problems up front. Um, and then we wanted to try and you know build the brand the right way, get the right things you know set up in the background, get the right testing done. And we wanted to make sure we had enough runway for that. This is a very different time though, so you know that that was that was a couple of years ago. It's it's a it's a it's a different environment now, um, but still a lot of liquidity I think for strong ideas and strong teams. This episode is sponsored by Hux Health, and Hux Health is your insurance policy. It is your booster shot, the extra hour of focus, or indeed the gift of sleep after a very long day. It is your secret weapon, and it's your daily edge. And it's also a product that I use daily, and I swear by it. I use the hydration tablets, the nootropic capsules, and the sleep capsules. Head over to HuxHealth.com, where you can get 30% off all the products by using the discount code SUCCESS when ordering, because life is about your path and not the beaten path. Back to the episode. And I mean, just looking at the the business, I suppose, most startups, when they, when they go into it, they wouldn't necessarily go in with three, four, five different SKUs. And you guys have got a multiple of different products from, you know, uh, hydration tablets, through to sleep, through to beauty, through to, to, through to focus. Why not just focus on one single product and make that the, the, the best you can possibly make it? What was the reason to, to diversify? I mean, it's it's a good question. We kind of we pressured ourselves up front. We just have one product, or but we, you know, I guess the two years in development meant that we treated each product like we only had one product, and we spent as much time, if not more, than people that you know only have one product that um, would in their development phase. The reason we wanted four is because we wanted, you know, there's a, quite a lot of supplement companies that are ingredient supplement companies, so they just provide you a bevy of ingredients, and then you kind of have to do all the work. You know, and sort out what you want to take, and because you're just buying individual ingredients and cobbling it all together. You know, my cupboard looked like, you know, completely messy. I was going to say something else. We complete, you know, it was completely, it was completely messy, and I'm like, yeah, that just has to be more simple than this. Like, just, just solve problems. Like, you know, essential nutrition. That's the problem. Have one product to solve it. You know, sleep, big problem for people. And very underserved in terms of really high potent, you know, products. So let's just make an absolute cracking one product to solve that problem. Hydration, the same, just a really effective electrolyte. And then um, same with kind of focus or brain health. You know, let's just make a really good 
brain health product and nootropic product. Um, so the reason to do that was we saw that those are the four biggest things that people have a problem with each day, that we have a problem with each day, um, that allows us to hopefully be a trusted health partner for people so that they can just go, no, I, I know this product works. I can, ha and we've made them all to play in concert. So there's no, you know, toxicity from having all of our products every day. Not that we expect everyone to have all of our products every day. It's just like, let's just solve the four biggest needs. Let's help people out so they can just get on with living their life and know that we, you know, can be trusted to solve that problem. Because in terms of anxiety, which is fundamentally what your sleep uh, sleep tablet does also help with, you know, that's a huge topic at, at the moment. Do you guys as founders, do you suffer with anxiety? Do you suffer with anything that your tablets are solving? Or have you gone into it knowing that others suffer with that and you're wanting to solve it for them? I.e., have you got first-hand experience? Yeah, I mean, we suffer from all, all four of them. That's kind of why we created. And I think the reality is, is that everyone suffers from all four of these things to some degree. You know, if if it was four or five years ago and someone said, were you, were you, do you suffer from anxiety? I think I might have had a, a more mental block in being able to accept that I do and most people do in in various circumstances um, or, you know, stresses come in their life. So absolutely, you know, um, we we all do. That's why we wanted to try and put some great products down to, to help. Through the, the journey that I was on with Kind, you know, we... Um, uh, at that time of Kind International, we partnered with Calm, the campaign against living miserably, which I think do you know in, incredible work, and um, and we had a, an amazing you know, ambassador for that in our business um, called Harry Corrin, who's now doing his own his own thing of mental health training. But um, that really opened up our eyes as a team, you know, into you know how pervasive and how common mental health challenges are, and you know how anxiety is a you know one element of that, and so. You know, this isn't going to solve everything. It's not a magic. It's not a magic potion, but it, you know, hopefully, it will help relieve some of those symptoms of anxiety, and you know, it'll help set you up each day to be able to cope with, you know, the things that happen. Like you know, not getting a good sleep, you know, just doesn't prepare you emotionally to get through the day, irrespective of whether you're an anxious person or not. You know. Um, same with brain health and, and focus, you know, that kind of nutrition really is the basis of emotional stability. And so when we're talking about, you know, mental health, I think it's fantastic. We're talking about mental health in terms of sharing the behavioral elements of it. And I think it's really common now that people uh, accept the fact that, you know, they should move their body and they should go outside and they should talk to a friend and they should, you know, kind of share their feelings. I think the part that's less intrinsically connected to mental health is nutrition. You know, is the what you put into your body is going to have a enormous impact on your emotional and mental stability. A hundred percent, because you know, putting a Domino's pizza inside you just makes you lethargic and want to fall asleep on the sofa, which is no good for anybody. But in terms of falling asleep on the sofa, you guys, and I was really interested when reading online that you said the first adopters of essentially Hux as a brand were gamers. I couldn't quite get my head around as to why. What was the reason for that? Particularly in the nootropic space, if you think of focus. So, you know, um, gamers have a um, a unique requirement to be able to be highly focused and highly dialed in for an extended period of time. And so a lot of people would turn to coffee or, you know, some other form of stimulant. Um, the trouble with that is it can have quite a short high. It can cause you jitters. Then it can be like a you know fairly heavy crash. Whereas there are much more natural forms of energy, and that that help you have mental clarity, focus, attention. Um, and gamers are just kind of onto it first. <laughs> Early adopters, like with everything, it seems with them. Correct, correct. Or maybe they're just the first to you know really try and work out how they could game um, Brad Cooper and Limitless and kind of convert it into a Call of Duty benefit, who knows. But yeah, they were definitely the first to um, to adopt it as a as an audience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, do a partnership with Game in the outlet store. You buy a Call of Duty and you get a free pack of Hucks with it. Exactly. Um, <laughs> in terms, I suppose, of, of, of fundamentally when you when you started it, coming up with the ideas that you did, were there any bets that you made from a from a tablet point of view or, or from a sort of you know pre made shake point of view that didn't work? You know, you went right. We're going to do this. We're going to solve this problem, and actually, this is going to be the flavour. And it just fell flat on its face. Or did everything you do? 
essentially come to fruition? No, not at all. Like, you know, we had a few, you know, we we had like multiple like product formats up front. Yeah, we're, we're already on to like version four of our um, superfood blend. We're on to like version, you know, two of our nootropics. So we're continually iterating it as as people experience it in the world and we've had friends and family try it and now a lot more people are trialing it. We're getting a lot more feedback. You know, be remiss of us to not continually make it better and so we're continually iterating it. But no, up, up front we had um, like we had clumping of our, our, our product because moisture was getting into it because we didn't have the right seal on our original tub. You know, we we didn't even, we forgot like in all of our experience, we forgot to put directions on the back of the tub as to how to consume it and how much <laughs> to put in it. Yeah, and then embarrassingly, we managed to get our um, scoop the wrong size up front so people were getting like the <laughs> half, half serving. Like why am I sitting? Why do I still have so much product of this after a month? You know, I know you're only getting half the serves. So we have to go. You know, there's, there's a. You know, we got the we got even got the website wrong on the back of one of our labels. You know that we had to <laughs> we had to then change. You know, kind of a, a spelling mistake here here and there. Um, yeah, as I said, like some product um, um, clumping up front that we had to you know quickly address with a different tube and a different like you know uh, format of. Um, transporting that that meant it was kind of more moisture protected and sealed so no it's ne it's never it's never straightforward it's it's embarrassing sometimes how rudimentary some of the mistakes are like you you kind of feel like you're across it or should be or have the experience to but there's you know there's too many things to be doing at once to to get everything right with We've certainly not been guilty of getting everything right. But, it, I mean, in terms of when something does go Pete Tong like that, how do you deal with it? Do you get angry? Do you go, right, that's really irritating. Who do I blame here? Or do you go, we're putting it down to the fact that we are just spread so thinly that that's inevitable. You know, how, how do you deal with it? Because people deal with mistakes in totally different ways. I'm a fairly pragmatic and even keel person by nature anyway, but... Um, it's different when it's your own product and it's something that you founded and it's super personal. Like every other brand that I've worked on, they are, you know, there's, there's large teams, it's established brands, you know, then there's always a process to, you know, check in on or follow or to, you know, work out what's, what went wrong and root cause analysis and fix it and what have you. But it's your own product and you know it's your own stuff up. You know, it's hard to not beat yourself up for it. But I don't know, the next... Like if you're in the back of the set with surfing, the next waves are coming through. You can't like, you're going to get crushed by the next one if you sit there and ruminate for too long. That's <laughs> very, very true. I like that. That's very true. In terms, I suppose, of delegation then, because obviously being quite relaxed, you know, it must be quite easy for you to go, actually, you guys just, just pick that up. That's cool. Are you somebody that delegates, you know, effectively? Is that something you've had to learn over time? Working in large organizations, you must have that ingrained in you, which to a certain extent for some entrepreneurs that start out, they don't because they've never had to work in a team. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, you used to, you know, I used to be Fairly, I, I became, I learned the skill of being, you know, a fairly effective at delegation. And then, like, now there's no one to delegate to. So it's like, this is a, it's like a unused skill <laughs> uh, because the, you know, the team is so thin, you know, at, at the start, it's starting to build out a little bit now, but the team is so thin at the start. There's, you know, you look around, there's, there's no one there. <laughs> you know, you have to do everything. It's definitely more emotional to like, so it, it has been a transition as we've then got more people involved um, in, as we need to, to build out the team. And something that you so inherently build from the start, you know, uh, it's definitely a high level of emotional attachment when, you know, it, when you've, get feedback or criticisms or things you want to change or things that the team want to do. But also the nice part is, is that the brand then gets reimagined by people that are better than you anyway and have more to add and they take it to somewhere that at the start you couldn't have even imagined where it would go. So it has much more benefits than it does downsides. Just kind of get over your own emotional attachment to it. Which is really difficult, and I suppose the same could be said when you're going for for VC funding or funding generally. And you guys recently closed a you know seven figure VC deal. Now you have to dilute equity when you're doing things like that, and obviously that's essentially giving away part of part of your baby, part of the thing that you've you've come up with, irrespective of what the upside might be. How do you work out a how much equity to give away, and b what you should actually go and fund? Because you know it's not a stab in the dark. There's a bit of logic to it, right? Yeah. It's a tricky balance, you know, of of not wanting to give away equity, but then have enough runway to be able to get enough awareness of the product that it does something. You know, 
we 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 were very cognizant that there's a bit of a moment, you know, as people come, you know, we're coming out of COVID and then kind of reestablishing their habits and reestablishing the brands they've interacted with and, you know, reestablishing how they kind of wanted to live their life, that we wanted to be part of that habit or that ritual that people, you know, established coming out. So we felt this desire to take on enough that allows us to go, you know, fast-ish um, but then, you know, not too much. That means that, you know, there's, there's no incentive, to, you know, and, but we would much prefer to have a brand that was, you know, a larger brand that had more awareness, more people have an opportunity to interact with it, makes it a better product because we get more feedback and we can, you know, iterate it, improve it, then be sitting on a, a, a brand that no one knows about, but we own all of it, you know? Um, and the part that's been amazing is the people we've got on board, you know, just they, they bring their energy and expertise and skill and experiences and, you know, everyone kind of wants to chip in and get involved and help. And, and, and so that makes it not just about money, that also makes it about kind of building a group of people or a team around that feel like they're all at stake for the same thing, which, which is, which is nice because I think entrepreneurship can feel really lonely, um, at times. Or often, a hundred percent, a hundred. Well, regularly, I think for a lot of people, especially, and, and and that's to the point of, you know, you guys having three co-founders. It must be actually really, really nice because you've got three people, three musketeers, three guys that you can go to the pub with, for instance, rather than, you know, single founders that go and start a business and just have to keep on going no matter what. Do you guys share that burden and share the bad times with the good times, or you know, how how does that work? Because it must be, it must be nice. There's some nice elements to it. There's some also. Um uh, painful elements to it, you know. Um, o- o- overall, is great because you've got people that are as emotionally invested as you are in in what you're creating, and you you come with it, and you have very different skills, but also very different personalities. I think the thing that is interesting is we've not really been that intentional from the start. We've learned to be a little bit more intentional about you know respecting that we all process information in a different way. Classic team stuff, you know. We process information a different way. We have different emotions, different reactions different things that we get insecure about, different things that we feel confident about, different areas that we have hard lines on, you know, and and others. And so it's been learning each other in a in a work context, not just in a friend context. So I don't think that's straightforward. That's hard. Um, so there's definitely some downsides, but the light of it is that you have people to share just the ups and the daily, hourly, every 10 minutes kind of ups and downs that come with, you know, um, starting and, and founding a brand. So the, there's definitely a lot more upsides than there is downsides. I just wanted to say, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. And if you are, we'd love it if you could rate it, subscribe to it and share it with friends and colleagues. As you know, the more reach that we get, the bigger the guests become and the more knowledge sharing that we can do. To find out more, head over to successpodcast.co.uk. As a startup or SME, it can be hard to keep your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on 100% of the time. A past guest of the show and now series sponsor, Habu, offers solutions to businesses and organisations of varying sizes the ability to pick and pack your product from their D2C hubs across Europe. You can now stop asking your partner to help box up a recent order, and your living room will no longer be filled with boxes from floor to ceiling. Instead, the team at Habu will do all of this for you, and you don't need to worry about size. Habu helps start startups with orders of less than 500 parcels a week all the way through to larger organisations with more complexities. So speak to the team at hubu.com and quote success pod and see how they can help you. Back to the episode. And in terms, Damien, then of your strengths and weaknesses, you say obviously you've got the two co-founders that have got hard stops in some instances. What do you do? What do you do really, really well? And what are you just not very good at doing? I think I'm balanced and pragmatic enough to hopefully be able to absorb a wide variety of information and then and then make reasonable quality decisions based off that um and so i don't think i'm specific i know i'm not i'm not uniquely skilled at anything if i've done anything okay within my previous career it was you know getting people together and making them feel like they're in an environment where they can feel safe and that they can you know be pushed and be challenged and contribute and then feel part of something. Um, what I don't do well sometimes is then being able to, you know, 
I think shifting gears is really important, you know, because sometimes you need to be highly directional and highly, um, you know, clear on that this is the budget today or this has to be done today, you know, otherwise, you know, we're not going to get where we need to get to tomorrow. And so that ability to be like super laser focused on one thing and then drive that one thing, you know, belligerently, you know, in a day in order to, to get you to the next is something is a skill that I struggle with sometimes because I, I tend to be more balanced. I tend to kind of see both sides and then I can then like hopefully can navigate way a, a pragmatic way through. Um, but that kind of belligerence is something I've had to learn and I'm not inherently good at it. <laughs> but that's good strengths and weaknesses. And I suppose in terms of the team and the growth of the team, how, how big are you now in terms of staffing? To bring someone on board full time, I think you have to be able to look them in the eye and say, I can afford to pay you for minimum the next 18 months. I don't know what the next after 18 months looks like, but I can afford to pay you for 18 months. So come on board. You can guarantee that we'll always can, you know, protect that runway. Um, and so we've been really careful to not bring people on board until we know we can do that. And so up front, we've been flexing much more with contractors, agencies, third parties, which is inherently a little bit more expensive, but a lot more flexible, clearly. You don't have to commit to like a full-time salary and, and what have you. But there comes a point where, you know, that doesn't make sense. And it does make sense for people to be on board full-time so that you don't have to continually brief or have people that are kind of dipping in and out of the brand and focusing on 30 different things. Um, so we have uh, we have a small team, so it's only a full time staff of five right now. Um, but kind of flexing up in, we have advisors that we that we, that we're lucky to have that that kind of you know give us great stewardship when we need it. Um, and then we flex the team up and down, you know, from a contractor perspective until we're really sure where we need the resource. And I mean, that's a hugely ethical and purpose-driven reason for not hiring staff, I suppose. And so many startups and scale-ups go, right, okay, we need to grow at all costs. We're going to pump a load of cash in here. We might only have a burn rate of three or even six months, frankly. Um, but actually, there might be light at the end of the tunnel and we might sell some more stuff or we do another fund. So that 18-month runway in terms of if you can't afford to pay for a member of staff, you don't hire them, i.e. You know, for 18 months at least, what, well, does that not stunt the growth to a certain extent? Do you not get investors going, no, we just need to hire? Or do they like it because you are, again, to use your term, very pragmatic? Some like it, some don't. Probably the standard in life and all things you do, you know, you're not going to you're not going to um, please everyone. As long as you're trying to tackle that growth with, you know, flexing it with contractors and third parties and agencies that you can use straight away, so you're not massively resource yep. constrained, just knowing it's going to cost you a bit more, and they're not going to be, you know, fully, fully um, dipped in the brand, you know. Um, but the benefit is they will be able to provide expertise that you can't afford right now. Is it right or not? I don't know. You know, I just think that the the biggest. Um, yeah, I, th I think it is stress. I was going to call it something else, but the reality is it's stress. I think the biggest stress you have with co-founder co is like, you know, do I have enough money to pay people? You know, um, and is the revenue that we're going to bring in, you know, is it is it going to generate enough that can fuel that? Most of the time it doesn't because, you know, you're just pouring all that and more back into marketing and awareness as you should to build the brand. And so you kind of then have to have enough cash flow that is, you know, intrinsically about your team and your people. Um, so I think about that. I think about that the most. I prefer to go a little bit slower and make sure that the people we bring on board know that they're not those that they're safe from expectations. I think our expectations are high and, and they're working bloody hard and we love them. Um, but they know they're safe from a perspective of, you know, we're not just going to turn around tomorrow and say, no, you're sacked next week. And, and that is, I mean, that's really inspiring. I've not heard anyone say 18 months before, but I get why. And if I was in a position to have done that, absolutely, I would have done. I mean, we've grown our business totally organically, so we've never had that VC fund. But if we had, I get the logic and I get the methodology behind that. And I suppose with that VC money and with that investment that you've had, are you looking to generate profit in the near term? Or is it literally to extend that burn rate to make sure that you're able to hire staff and actually you may not make profit for the next two or three years? We won't make profit, but that will be intentional. You know, if you look at our unit economics, we could make profit. It just would be a small, profitable business. You know, um, and so we're really clear on our unit economics um, to make sure that we have a pathway to profitability. But we are actively not choosing that profitability because we want to spend 
a lot more in awareness driving initiatives, whatever that may be, whether that's paid, whether it's partnerships, whether it's events, whether it's in time equity deals with the right people or what, whatever it might be. Um, so we always want that to be a choice though, rather than kind of forced upon us. Um, so, so, you, so no, we won't be profitable. And I've never told any investor that would be profitable, you know, in, in the next three years, easily, probably much more. Um, but I want it to be a choice. That's all. And I think a lot of people get that when they're investing in scale up specifically businesses such as this, which very much is. Um, they kind of get the fact they might not necessarily make profit, but arguably it, it's from a psychological point of view, it's a really interesting way of running a business, right? It's cash in, burn the cash, get more cash in, burn the cash. And it doesn't logically make sense from a business standpoint, but yet if you have a plan at the end or a light at the end of the tunnel, you can get out of it. You don't want to run it at a loss forever, right? That's not your intention. But in terms of getting to that profitability, how do you plan? How do you map? And how do you make sure you get there and you don't just keep burning through money? You get these kind of scale benefits in you know in time, like you know, you know the kind of classic thing of like big brands win twice. You know, they're people they're they're thought of more often, and therefore it's it's, it's a lower conversion cost or acquisition cost. However, you think of acquisition, whether it's Digital, you know, acquiring them through digital means or acquiring them through uh, a supermarket shelf or an event or you know in, or anything else. I feel like the balancing act between those two things, or the or the choices of the or the you know kind of decision making triggers on when to spend and when not to, is you know that's where you're really you know going to the casino a bit because this stuff isn't it, it, you know it isn't. Some ele elements of it are a little bit more logarithmic, you know, because you go, okay, no, I know how much it costs to acquire this customer. It's, you know, I, I know kind of the long-term value of that customer. So therefore I know roughly what I can spend acquiring that person and, you know, how long they're likely to stay with us. And therefore, you know, what that, you know, that relationship you have with that customer is worth. And so therefore, and if there's mutual benefit, then they stay and you don't have churn. So that stuff's a little bit, um, you know, more straightforward. I think the bigger things of like, you know, what markets to go into or who to partner with or what events to do or what awareness to have. I was, I was chatting to a mate that works at Google and I was asking for some of his, you know, learnings because he was on the other side. We worked together um, at Mars years ago. Like, what do you see now on the other side? He's like, if you think of the funnel, all big brands spend all the money at the top of the funnel and then none at the conversion, conversion, uh, conversion bottom of funnel. And then all small brands spend all their money at the bottom of funnel and conversion and none of it, um, you know, uh, top line awareness building the brand and, you know, the answer somewhere in between. But it's like toggling between that continuum is tricky. This episode is sponsored by Hux Health. And Hux Health is your insurance policy. It is your booster shot, the extra hour of focus, or indeed the gift of sleep after a very long day. It is your secret weapon and it's your daily edge. And it's also a product that I use daily and I swear by it. I use the hydration tablets, the nootropic capsules, and the sleep capsules. Head over to huxhealth.com where you can get 30% off all the products by using the discount code SUCCESS when ordering, because life is about your path and not the beaten path. Back to the episode. So Damon, in terms of um, NEDs, boards, advisors, people that can generally guide you, is it better to focus in your industry and get the uh, advice within that sector, or is it better to sort of spread yourself across multiple industries and get multiple different opinions? You kind of like have to be aware of like... Um there's just so much you don't know, but you don't know what a blind spot is because a blind spot, there's a problem about it. And so um, the more people you can kind of surround yourself with that uh, have different perspectives or different industries or just see things in a different way, because ultimately anything is trying to have a product or service that provides some value, have people have an interaction with that value, and then there's kind of this kind of mutual exchange. So if you pair it down to the base level, it is you know fairly similar. We were lucky... Um, it, well, lucky and intentional that some of our really early investors had been in a similar space. So, for instance, Bulldog Skincare, um, a great brand in here in the UK, two excellent founders who have been incredible for us, kind of you know guiding us through you know what they've learned in you know building a brand from scratch and then going right through to exiting a brand with the people that own Printworks, you know, as invested in us as well. So, a completely different walk of life, you know, um, but great outlet if you just want to go to you know an iconic venue and you know lose yourself you know for a night but they they bring in an enormous amount of expertise in 
um, not just that, but festivals that they own and, you know, kind of music and industry. And we wanted to do this a little bit differently. You know, we wanted this product not to just be for gym junkies, you know, it can be for them or athletes, but we just want it to be for, you know, everyday people trying to live their life. Well, you're kind of taking that mantra of you, you want to call it your trusted health partner, right? Um, which is kind of what you guys are looking to do. And I wouldn't actually associate it with Gym Monkeys at all. I think it's quite refined in terms of in terms of brand and in terms of what it is. And was that your decision? Was that the advisors? How did you get to that brand of Hux? And uh, why Hux? We saw three things going on in the category, that it was confusing, that it was boring in terms of design codes, and that it was largely ineffective. And so the the those three things we wanted to address. We wanted to have a simple product that solves one need. We wanted to have, we wanted to borrow fashion design cues that you could have on the countertop, not shove away in the cupboard. And then we wanted to, to really work, you know, so we wanted it to, to be uncompromisingly potent, which means our cost of good is, is much higher than a lot of our, you know, competitors, you know, our, you know, the time it took for us to get trademark rights. So use particular ingredients or, you know, it just took a lot longer. But what we see in our numbers now is our churn rate is really low. So the people that, that buy our products, they stay with our products, you know, much more than, you know, um, is industry standard or, or a lot of others. And then what we wanted to do as a guest is to give people a daily edge. So I guess our chef is your daily edge. Um, and then the, the design in, within the H is an infinity symbol. So, you know, every day it's required or a double helix as well has like a, a dual meaning. And we found we could, we found for ourselves that we could really rally around that. We hoped in time that that would be a distinctive asset for us. Yeah, no, it looks, it looks really, really cool. I really like it. And in terms, I suppose you mentioned earlier about, about the stress from a payroll point of view, but looking at sacrifice for you personally to get to the point that you are now a couple of years on with the business, what have you had to sacrifice, if anything, in your life to get to where you are today? You have to sacrifice a lot. Like I was on a, I was on a, I was on a, it was a large corporate job. So it was remunerated accordingly. And, you know, and so there was, you know, that comes with a lot of predictability that you can then map out the rest of your life. You know, you know exactly your income that you're getting, you know, you know that you are supported in a, a lot of additional benefits on, on, on top of that, which, you know, you know, you have to give a pound of flesh for, but you really, um, you know, lucky and fortunate to get within some of those, you know, corporate environments. And so coming out of that means you lose that warm safety blanket of, you know, knowing what income looks like and then being able to plan life accordingly for that. Um, so that's tricky. That's hard. Uh, it also then means you are, you know, you have to be geographically in many different areas at many different times, depending on, you know, what's required and, you know, um, at a whim. Uh, the switching off is a lot less or, or harder to do when it's your own. I'm sure you know as well from your own business, yeah, yeah. you know, because there is really no off time. It's just, you know, how you're choosing to get your energy back in, in different areas. So that kind of constant thought is, is still there. Um, and it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a whole truckload of work. You know, my, my <laughs> respect for entrepreneurs um, who build something from the ground up and then have a brand that catches some kind of light, you know, it, that, that people resonate with and it, you know, and they can get people, you know, uh, moving around it is enormous. This is hard. Certainly, certainly not easy. It's certainly not for the faint of heart. And it's, but it does teach you a lot about yourself. You know, I think I've, I've learned a lot in the last 12 months that I might not have learned otherwise. Because I mean, in terms of those that are looking to start a business or jumping a sh jumping ship in a corporate world, because you're right. I mean, leaving a six figure salary to essentially bootstrap a company, which in reality might not work, is a massive risk. Because you can't just go and walk back into the corporate world three years later because you haven't got the experience and they just won't want you. So, you know, what do you need to consider when looking to start something irrelevant of where you are in your life? I think being really real with yourself, whether you have a, I think the, the term is overused, but whether you have a genuine value proposition or whatever you want to call it, like, do you have something, you know, simply put, and then do you have people in your life that can tell you when you don't have something? And so I, the, cause it's so easy to get wrapped up in your own kind of talk to yourself in an echo chamber of how good your product is or why, you know, and there's so many brands that are good you know, and a, a lot of those brands don't work and, and don't succeed. 
So having some people in your life that can tell you if the idea is good or not in a very straightforward manner is useful. That don't feel the need to try and protect your ego or, you know, um, or anything else. I think that that's really helpful. Um, but really just identifying like, do you actually have something that the world needs, you know, or not? And can you kind of passionately put your time and energy and resources and attention towards it? And is that worthwhile or not? So it's like what Steve Jobs basically said. He said, uh, it's not what you say yes to, it's what you essentially say no to. And having a good circle of friends or family or advisors or whatever it might be, fundamentally will be those people that tell you it's crap when it is crap. But, you know, yes, they might want to protect your ego, but how do you kind of cut through that noise? Because you go to, you know, your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister and go, look, guys, I've got this really good idea. Nine times out of 10, they'll say, yeah, that's really good, Damien, go for it. Rather than, it's just not going to work, carry on doing what you're doing. You know, how do you cut through that? And how do you get a fully candid response from them? I don't think I'll ever get a, a, a. I will always get a you know a loving response from my from from my family rather than a candid response, and I don't want anything different to that. I think that I think that's a, a, a nice thing to be able to rely on. Um, I have you know peers and colleagues and friends and you know people within the industry that I really respect that you know see a lot of brands or have a, a particular unique perspective where they see a lot of these things but more than that you know i have a, a couple of friends in um in some companies and some vcs that, are, that invest a lot and and they're very acutely skilled at looking at the the drivers of what they commonly see as success markers versus not and so i've you know given them the invitation that i don't want it to be three years time when they oh yeah i saw that stuff i didn't want to like say you didn't ask you know like you have an open invitation I want to know because it's also my time. You know, you, the most important thing that you have to invest is your time and your energy. And if I'm putting my time and energy to this, it means I'm not putting my time and energy to some other things. Um, to your point of what are the things that you're sacrificing, and so I want to make sure that it's worth it. Mm -hmm. I mean, you must have seen a massive uprising in in in, in terms of mental health, well being, and, and just generally uh, people's perception on what the industry is, specifically over the last sort of you know three, five, ten years. You know, how has it changed, even in the short period that Hux has been around for you, from when you initially conceptualised the idea through to where it is now? Because it's so much more accepted. It's so like the category is all like all of these categories. And however you want to define it, whether you define it as individual ones or just like holistically health and wellness or what have you. Like it has just, for the right reasons, I think just ballooned post-COVID. And I don't think it's all because of COVID. Obviously it was already growing and it was already a trend. I just think people had that pause moment of, oh God, like, you know, if I don't have my health, I don't have anything. You know, like the, it, it, it is the first thing you need before you're able to do anything else. And so, therefore, it deserves a bit of time in the tension. I think that period of time also just gave people a, a little bit of a pause on, you know, and I was the same. I was like, I was living a busy life. You know, I was in the corporate, I was traveling a lot, you know, and it's easy to just let time go or to not stop and reflect. It's kind of impossible to not stop and reflect across that time. And, you know, no doubt it's hard to keep those thoughts or keep those, you know, positive benefits as you then enter back into a world. But um, I, I think the nice thing is that seems to have stuck is that like your own emotional well-being or your own, you know, mental health is like fundamentally important. It's as important as, you know, as going for a run and and, and, and anything else and you know food's one element of that and so are your relationships and how you disclose and, and, and everything else but like I, I think that's a hopefully a benefit that will stay as a startup or SME it can be hard to keep your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on 100% of the time a past guest of the show and now series sponsor Habu offers solutions to businesses and organisations of varying sizes the ability to pick and pack your product from their D2C hubs across Europe you can now stop asking your partner to help box up a recent order and your living room will no longer be filled with boxes from floor to ceiling instead the team at Habu will do all of this for you and you don't need to worry about size Habu helps startups with orders of less than 500 parcels a week all the way through to larger organisations with more complexities. So speak to the team at habu.com and quote success pod and see how they can help you. Back to the episode. 
And in terms, I suppose, of, of mental health, you know, for the wider market that you're obviously selling to, but fundamentally, your business, your colleagues, your staff, your your co-founders, what do you have in place from a company point of view, if anything, that, that allows them to, from a mental and well-being point of view, be okay? Because actually, you're selling it, so do you preach it? We try to live at each other. This is a really topical conversation, which I had a, um, actually just last weekend, um, um, Al and I were, were having a chat on, um, let's... Let's employ. Uh, I've traditionally over you know my um, last maybe ten years, I've had a you know a, a coach, which is really a therapist. You know that you know when you're in a corporate world, they call them a coach. You know what what you really get is a therapist to try and kind of help you through. But like that's been such an enormously beneficial thing for me to be have spent my time on, and I think it has had huge you know one benefits to me and then the people around me. As we kind of have started all this up, you know, our critic our self-criticism is we haven't put as much time and attention and time has slipped and we haven't put as much time and attention into that as we wanted to. And so we're chatting on the weekend about how do we have, you know, a therapist essentially, performance coach, whatever you feel comfortable about talking to them about, a space where we can talk to each other and appreciate each other's skills and values, what we bring, and even just have a space for the emotions to come out, um, because it is emotional. So um you know, we do all the normal things of flexibility and whatever else, but we, it's really interesting that you just said that because, yeah, we that's something that we're going to put in place. I think it's super helpful and healthy to have a, a, a therapist to help guide you through. 100%. And even just talking about it as candidly as you just did there by saying you for the last 10 years have had somebody to just fundamentally help you through good times and bad would, you know, even frankly, three years ago, been a bit taboo. People would have gone, oh, that's a bit weird that you're doing that. But, you know, ahead of the time in that sense, credit to you. And how has that helped you when going through decisions and going through periods in your life, irrelevant of if it's work, it might be relationships, it might be family matters. How has that coach, that mentor, that counsellor helped you compartmentalise in your head where you should go and what you should do as Damien? I think having someone that is, it's it's amazing to be able to share with mates and friends, you know, over a drink or or whatever else. And that's good to to an extent because it allows you to just get it out. What I've found incredibly useful is getting it out and then putting it in the hands of someone skilled that is able to kind of do something with it, you know, is fundamentally different. It invites a different level of openness from you because they're just more skilled at how to open you up and so much more useful coming back because they're just really skilled at being able to um, give you the level of introspection that you need to understand yourself better, but then also pull you out of that and still make things practical and, you know, make you function and, you know, try and just get some progress of improvement, you know, rather than you kind of feeling lost. Yeah, sometimes you can you, you can have like a really deep conversation with a friend and you're both kind of almost awkwardly standing or sitting there. You're like, oh God, what do we... <laughs> What do we now do with that? Like, like you, that, that? That's now out. We're not skilled enough to know what to do with that ball you've just thrown at me. Um, and so I think that's very valid and, and it's healthy, but it's also healthy to have someone that this is their job. Yeah, very much so. And have you ever sort of sat in one of those sessions? They're not meetings, but sessions and, and doubted yourself and gone, actually, I just can't do this. This doesn't make sense to me anymore. It took me a little while. I think I, I came in. It took me a little while to be fully present, and like, I don't think it's. I don't think it's possible to fully let your ego go. At, you know, you know, kind of ever. It's always kind of there somewhere. But to try and calm any of that down, or need to prove, or anything, so that you could fully, like, you know, when you're doing a stretch or what have you, and you're like resisting the stretch, and then you kind of let it go, and then you like, you like, you go so much further. But that made me question things much more. I think it was actually, it sent me into more self-doubt than it did help up front, which is probably useful in retrospect, but hard to deal with at the time. But no, I feel that I feel that way all the time. I feel that way now. Like what 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 business do I do having been an entrepreneur? Like what do I think I can do, <laughs> can do this? Like you know. Um, so now I've always felt that way, whether it's this or leading large teams or, or doing 
you know, roles in different countries or what have you. Like, I, I, I've, I've always felt that way. You shouldn't have imposter syndrome. You shouldn't doubt yourself because what you've done is, is amazing. The product's brilliant. But what do the next kind of couple of years look like for you? We feel like we've done enough testing to feel really confident that while we'll have a continually get a better product, that we've got a good product that we can invest behind and then we can, you know, and we can push out in the world and that it will make a material difference in people's lives. So now we're at that point, we feel that we can, you know, deploy some capital and do some things and, um, and, and try and, um, you know, uh, get the product out there. So we'll continue to build our subscription business here in the UK and 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 do some you know premium retail. We will go into the US in the middle of this year, which we're preparing for now, um, uh, because well for lo- for lots of reasons. Uh, but we we want to go there quite quickly because we actually see that there is some disruption that can happen there, and that we feel like we've got a good product market fit that we could um, have a as a decent story there. The US is quite fundamentally different in this category than the UK insofar as the salience, the awareness, the participation in the category is much higher. That also means there's a lot more competition. Um, so, you know, that's a that's a good way of getting to the, going to the major leagues and kind of road testing how good you are. America will be exciting. It won't be cheap though. Are you, are you running off the VC fund you've already had or are you going to raise again for that? We'll raise again. We'll raise again in the middle of the year, yeah. That's properly exciting. And, and to sort of help you on that journey of just fundamentally buying the product, where can we go to buy Hux? You can buy Hux at huxhealth.com. So H-U-X-H-E-A-L-T-H.com. Um, either subscription or, you know, one-off purchases. But um, yeah, we've got a full D2C model here already running in the UK. And then we've got a cat um, shipping fee to the US that we're running now as well. So that um, if any of your listeners are in the in the US, they can, they can start ordering it now ahead of our launch later in the year. I love it. It's genuinely brilliant. I do use it, not just saying that. So Damien, thanks so much for coming on the show. And here's a little message from our carbon offset partners, Carbon Positive. So, hey, Andrew, I just, uh, thank you so much for joining us. We obviously wanted to introduce you because you guys are happily uh, supporting us from a carbon positive point of view, trying to get the, the podcast carbon positive over the next 12 months. But I wanted you to tell the listeners why you chose this podcast and you know what's so special about carbon positive from a non-for-profit point of view. So we decided to choose success in the mind podcast for a couple of reasons it's not necessarily our absolute forte because of uh, our position being a being a not-for-profit but uh, it definitely aligns with some of the aspects that we do uh, and that we want to support podcasts with in particular we want to make it easy for podcasts to be able to to be able to become carbon positive and to be able to make their podcast environmentally friendly and show their listeners that they have a social conscience. We understand that it's difficult for people and it takes a lot of time sometimes and we want to give podcasts the tools to be able to calculate and offset their carbon footprint throughout their whole podcast which goes from everything from production to their listeners across the world and to be able to offset that footprint and become a carbon positive podcast so i mean for us it's, it's something quite close to our heart from a business point of view we're very much focusing on becoming carbon neutral now with regards to the podcast you guys are kindly helping us along the way of becoming carbon positive so 120 percent uh, uplift on on that essentially just talk to me about how you're going to make our podcast carbon positive over the next 12 months we essentially use an algorithm to calculate the carbon footprint of every podcast so with that algorithm takes into account lots of different factors basically everything from uh, listener location listener device choices global electricity consumption for example with the device choices if someone was to listen to a podcast on a mobile phone it's 600 times less energy intensive than if they were to listen to it on a laptop or computer, for example. So we'll take all of that information and we'll create a custom plan that will be specifically tailored towards successes in the mind. That will help us in two ways. It will help us to make sure that we can keep really up-to-date statistics for every single podcast and it will also give us a good idea to make sure that the algorithm is calculating efficiently you know you're a non-for-profit business b 
Um, I don't think you've necessarily worked with podcasts necessarily like ours before. So it's really exciting to be on that journey with you, helping you guys do it. But but similarly, sort of seeing what you guys want from us equally. No, you are. You are um, absolutely our first major case study, which is super exciting for us because it really gives us some in-depth data that we can use to help every other podcast. 80 to 85% of the podcasts that are produced will be able to offset their carbon footprint for less than the price of a takeaway coffee every month. We see podcasting as a as quite a young industry, which means that we have a unique opportunity to be able to gain there early and to support podcasts to become carbon positive and make podcasting the world's first carbon positive medium. It's properly exciting to, to be on that, that, that journey with you. And I know you guys are based out in Switzerland and we're obviously based in the UK, but to be able to come together remotely is, is very exciting. And to be able to see our podcast become carbon positive over the next 12 months for me um, is just another reason reason to, to, to get involved in it. So thank you very much for asking us to get involved. In terms of people that are listening to, to this show and every other show, where can they go to A, find out more about Carbon Positive um, and B, what do they need to do to get in touch? The place to find out more would be to go to our website, www.carbonpositive.com. But then, as we all know, every business comes with unavoidable carbon footprint. We understand that Offsetting isn't the absolute answer, but make the industry better, first of all, and then what is unavoidable footprint, we can try and offset. There'll be a tips and tricks page on the website, which will help to reduce, first of all. And then there's a really short little page on there that you can input two pieces of data, monthly downloads and average listening time. And then within two minutes, a podcast can become carbon positive. I think it's worth saying as well, the um, the footprint of the podcasting industry is 1.7 billion kilograms of carbon per year, just because that doesn't really mean anything to me a year ago, but now it does. It's equivalent to 2 million flights from London to New York every year, or alternatively, a flight every 15 seconds. It's a drop in the ocean as far as the world is concerned. But if we can reduce that and obviously eventually bring that down to zero or even bring it into the positive section, which is what we're hoping to do, then we hope that that should make a difference. Wow. 15 flights a second, carbon positive. I love it. I'm glad we're involved. And thank you so much for thinking of us, Andrew. Thank you very much, Oliver, for speaking to me. 